Hi, I'm your host, Kimberly Thomas-Tigg, and you're listening to Signalize, a Dazzle for Rare podcast. Whether you're a patient, advocate, caregiver, or a clinician, Signalize is your source for good news, personal stories, events, and the things that Rare and associated communities care about. Follow Signalize and Dazzle for Rare at D-A-Z-Z-L-E, the number four, R-A-R-E, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, where we'll post episode links, updates, and more. Welcome to this episode of Signalize, a Dazzle for Air podcast. In this episode, we're joined by Dr. Nicola Garnier, who will tell us a bit about himself and his work in just a moment. We plan to discuss Dr. Garnier's work in newborn screening and the topic more broadly, but I couldn't help myself. I wanted to get a more full understanding of his current project, Screen for Care, where he is the consortium lead. I think of Dazzle Frere as being a community service to our rare and associated communities, so I'm glad I dug a little bit deeper in with Dr. Garnier during this chat, and I hope you'll enjoy our conversation. In fact, I'd like to have him back for a future follow-up episode, so if you have questions you'd like Dr. Garnier to answer, email them over. For those who are hoping to hear our TLDR segment, Rare and Relevant, there will be a bonus episode today covering those news items. I hope you listen to both episodes, but if you're looking for some R&R, head over to that episode for what's happening in our global community. And now, on with the show. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Nicola Garnier from Screen for Care. He is the consortium lead, and Screen for Care is a newborn screening project in the UK and EU. So it's very exciting to have you today with us. Would you get us started by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Thank you, Kimberly, for the invitation, and hello, everyone. So my name is Nicola Garnier. I am a, a um, doctor in experimental medicine. And I currently am the head of patient advocacy for Pfizer Global Product Development. I have been at Pfizer for eight years now, and I am also very happy and proud to be the consortium lead, as you said, for the Screen for Care initiative. My first question is, how did you become involved in patient engagement and the, the role that you have currently and why rare conditions? What, what brought you to that area? I guess throughout my career, it uh, was a natural progression. I'm a scientist by training. I've studied rare cancers, the genomics of, of rare cancers and rare leukemias before joining Pfizer as a medical advisor for rare disorders. So for me, it was a natural bridge going from studying rare cancers to trying to help rare disease communities. I think there was a lot to be learned and a lot to, to bring to the rare disease community coming from the oncology world. And then through my work at Pfizer, my engagement with rare disease communities, patients, caregivers, advocacy organizations really led me to wanting to do that full time. And so when the opportunity materialized for me to um, have a role fully dedicated to patient engagement and patient advocacy, particularly in the context of clinical trials. It was really ideal. And um, I've have been doing this for the past four years now and really have not looked back. Well, we're glad to have you. Certainly, it's always good to have more people who are really engaged in what's important to us as patients and patient advocacy groups. So in terms of the newborn screening and the rare disease side of what you're working on, I guess we all know that newborn screening is important. I mean, it picks up conditions like sickle cell disease, which is a devastating condition. And that's something that is routinely screened for here in the UK, I believe. But beyond that, what should parents or 
you know, people who are looking into having children, what should they be thinking about in terms of newborn screening? What's the importance for them? Because I think a lot of people think, oh, rare disease. Rare disease is rare. It's never going to happen to me. But it happens to millions of people around the world. So what would you say to folks who are wondering what that means to them? I guess we could say, you know, many things. But like you mentioned, right, when people think rare disease and especially rare genetic diseases, we hear rare and therefore we think that uh, it has a very low likelihood to happen, right, when it um, when it's about yourself. But like you said, right now there's between... 7,000 to 10,000 rare disease that have been identified. And overall, we think that um, maybe up to 400 million people in the world are affected by a rare disease. And 72% of these diseases have a genetic origin. And so what that means is that at least in theory, a lot of these diseases could be identified as part of a newborn screening program or newborn genetic uh, screening program. And so that's really um, where where I would start the, the conversation is reframing that idea uh, of rare being rare. Um, and this is actually a concept that has been echoed for the past several years by the rare disease advocacy community, is that taken together, rare diseases are not so rare. We're actually a lot more common than people realize. I always like to bring out the statistics, just a bit like you did there with the three to 400 million people worldwide. In the US, it's one in 10 people will experience a rare condition. In the UK, it's, I believe, one in 17. So you know, if you know more than 10 people or you know more than 17 people, presumably you're going to know someone with something uncommon or rare. And once I started to talk about it in my life, people just came out from every corner of my network and held their hand up and said, I have scleroderma or Wilson's disease or any of the many conditions that are out there. So it, so we're not as rare as, as folks tend to think. In terms of what is currently being screened for routinely, how many are there currently that are being screened for, do you know? That's a complex question because it's different in every country. So there's a high variability of how many diseases are being screened right now at birth, uh, even within uh, EU or within Europe. What I know is that a country like Italy, for example, is, is very advanced in terms of newborn screening. And I believe that they are screening over 40 uh, rare diseases uh, right now in Italy. And just to give you a comparator with France, for example, which is a little bit on the lower end of the spectrum, um, I believe that they just uh, increased their newborn screening program to 11. So as you can see, there's um, it's quite different depending on where, where you're looking at. That's really interesting that you mentioned Italy because one of the members of our network is in Italy and she's been very engaged in the newborn screening process in Italy. So she actually had a lot to say about newborn screening. And one of the things that she mentioned is if and I hope I'm not inaccurate in saying this, and, and if she's listening, I'm sure she will <laughs> make sure to correct me at some point. But if I understood correctly, with that new longer list that Italy is screening for, if a condition does not have a current treatment, they won't be screening for it, is what I'm hearing from her. So when it comes to newborn screening, you know, where do we sit? I mean, do we screen for things that don't have treatments and then report that information to families? Or do you err on the side of screening for whatever we can, whatever we have current knowledge of, and then going from there? Right. So where we stand right now, I mean, newborn screening are uh, public health programs that have been ongoing for decades. 
and have really delivered tremendous value to patients, to people, to the general public, identifying diseases early, diseases that have a treatment. Right now, globally, what people use in general are what is being referred to as the 10 principles of Wilson and Jungner, who were articulated in 1968, that kind of define which um, diseases um, it is ethical to screen for as part of a newborn screening program. And one of those criteria is the existence of a treatment uh, that has been proven to work uh, and that is approved and, and available. Long story short, that is what is being used right now in the current ethical framework. That's fantastic. That's really interesting to know. And hopefully, do you have any any resources or links that we can include in the show notes for that? Absolutely. Oh, that would be fantastic. Because if there's anything I know about patient advocates, they will read everything. They We want to read everything. We want to know what the history is. We, we like to investigate. Okay, so if there is no existing treatment, then ethically, it probably will not be screened for. So it depends. So this is where we are now, the current ethical framework, right? We need to have a treatment available to allow, to your point, ethically, to screen for a disease. One of the key elements of Screen for Care, actually, is to try and challenge this a little bit. We want to be provocative. We want to drive progress and change for a better outcomes for our disease communities. And in the recent years, actually, Eurodis had put forth the concept of actionability, which goes beyond treatability. And actionability, advocacy communities is making a case for this to be maybe a more recent or more modern way to look at it and, and, and advocate for newborn screening for diseases that are actionable, even if they don't necessarily have a treatment. But maybe we'll get back to that when we dive more into screen for care. When we talk about these issues, so let's say a family is part of a program like Screen for Care, what sort of data might be collected to sort of correlate the result that you get with maybe the family history? And will families have any sort of support? Or, or do you know of any programs in any countries where the family gets a genetic diagnosis from newborn screening? And then is there a support option or anything that they can rely on after that? So maybe just to add that Screen for Care is a research project. And when we talk about the newborn screening that we're going to do in the context of Screen for Care, it is going to take the shape of clinical trials, which means that every participating parent um, will sign an informed consent document where everything will be explained, what the study entails, but also their, their own rights uh, with regards to the data. And obviously, data privacy is, is very important, and everything will be in play explained in that document. Now, what we anticipate that will happen is that for for um, parents for whom the newborn will, you know, will find something in our screening, they will receive a genetic report. And usually, the way it works is that this is delivered in the context of a conversation with a genetic counselor, and that's really a, a key aspect of doing these types of studies is the involvement of genetic counselors who are trained to deliver this type of information, um, answer as best as they can uh, questions from the parents, and then also potentially start 
drafting what could be a plan for the beginning of, of a care pathway for those parents uh, and their newborns. Thankfully, in Europe, there is a structure called the European Reference Networks that can be useful for a physician to look for an expert in a particular rare disease that could be a point of care or a point of information for a family that would have received a genetic report indicating the potential presence of, of a genetic variant associated with a rare diseases. I want to emphasize the fact that the genetic report is not a diagnosis itself, right? It is a beginning of a diagnosis journey, which hopefully will be short. But in the end of the day, it is really the clinician, the doctor, that by looking at the genetic report and also potentially a battery of confirmatory tests that ultimately can deliver the, the, the confirmed diagnosis. So what we're really trying to do here with genetic newborn screening is to accelerate that. That brings up so many more questions, <laughs> which is great. It's great to have a dialogue about these things. So to compare and contrast then, Screen for Care is a research project and it's leading into clinical trials. But regular newborn screening in most countries, I don't have a lot of experience with, but I presume it's pretty simplistic. I, it's been a while since I've had a newborn. My son is nine. I think I remember just a heel prick test, and I don't even think that they told me anything about what was being screened for. Um, and my son actually did have to go back into hospital pretty uh, when he was a week old, and he ended up having mysterious things that couldn't be explained. But no one, no one talked to me about anything at all. It was really like being in the dark. So. I guess now, making that compare and contrast, Screen for Care has a very specific goal in leading into trials and to leading into solutions and providing parents with data. You're absolutely right. A, a, a regular, already implemented newborn screening program is not a clinical trial. This is a public health program, right? And so there's no informed consent. It, it's just something that is implemented, that is done for everyone. And that's really how you leverage the power of a newborn screening is that is if everyone um, go through it. And then what you're referring to is the dry blood spots that go onto a card and then many tests can be performed uh, on that. Screen for Care is a research project. The goal, when I say clinical trial, is that the, the newborn genetic screening itself will be a clinical trial, but Screen for Care will not need to, what we commonly think about clinical trials, meaning trying a treatment or a therapy or some kind of intervention, that is not the goal at all of Screen for Care. It's really to perform, if you will, a pilot or multiple pilots that look like a newborn screening program, but then gather data on feasibility, satisfaction from, from families, uh, implementability in the local health systems, uh, also understand the economics of the whole approach and then how many people were diagnosed and the sensitivity and the specificity of the different approaches. Because within Script for Care, we're going to try different approaches, but it's really a clinical trial about newborn screening, not about therapy. If therapy needs to happen after a diagnosis sort of helped or facilitated by screen for care it will happen in the in the normal local standard of care and healthcare system of the country because there will be there are many countries involved in screen for care that makes sense thank you for clarifying that so just thinking through what you've said 
So at what point are people selected or are newborns selected to even be screened for this this project? Because, you know, certainly when you're currently in the hospital, you know, you have your dry blood spot, you don't you aren't told anything, there's no dialogue about it. But this is a very different situation. So how is that selection process made? Screen for care will be conducted in several countries across Europe including Germany and Italy. We are working on potentially adding a couple of more countries, but we're still working on that. And then within those countries, we will have birth centers that will basically be sites for our project. And so parents who are expecting to give birth to a child in those sites will be approached by the staff and offer the possibility to consider participating into this research protocol. And that's what I meant by clinical trial. And so basically, they will be given information as well as links that uh, lead to online resources for them to think about the possibility of, of joining this project. And then if they are interested and willing, they will sign a consent form, which means that when the baby is born, we will be allowed to use the dry blood spot to do the genetic test. Going back to the, the concept of a family is, is identified, are they identified or are they given the opportunity or do they even hear about the program through their GP or their primary care doctor in their country? And then are they more likely to be a participant if they have a current history of a genetic illness or, or we're just looking at the general population? We're thinking general population who will be able to approach families to give them an opportunity to consider joining will depend also because things are managed uh, differently in different countries and different regions. It could be the obstetrician, it could be, uh, you know, the GPs. Some of those aspects, we sort of wrote them in an open-ended fashion to allow for flexibility. So that's something that we'll, we'll sort of refine uh, down the line when we get there. Patient advocacy groups are often, again, very engaged in anything that gives them a, maybe a diagnostic pathway or a pathway for their children to get any kind of testing or any kind of better care. Is there a way that patient advocacy groups and families can get involved early in this process and support the process? How are you currently working with the general public in regards to the project? Two aspects with regards to the general public. Within Screen for Care, we have a team, a sub-team, dedicated to communications and disseminations. We really do everything we can to bring this topic on public forums, uh, on social media, uh, but also in conferences and events. And it's not just only us, right? I think the entire rare disease advocacy communities really bringing this topic of conversation on the forefront to sensitize and really increase awareness on the importance of newborn screening and the importance of a speedy and accurate diagnosis to end or reduce something that is really detrimental right now to many rare disease communities, which is the diagnostic odyssey. Uh, which is, uh, as, as we know, very uh, difficult and leads to poor outcomes uh, for, for uh, rare, disease, rare disease families. Um, Eurodis is a member of Screen for Care, and with them, um, we have put together a patient advisory board within Screen for Care, with whom we partner to make sure that everything we do or plan to do is really tailored to the needs and preferences 
of rare disease communities. And that's just one of the ways through which we make sure that uh, we partner with the advocacy community in the context uh, of screen for care Talking to patient advocacy groups about this, um, you know, obviously everybody has a different perspective. And so I think one thing people wanted to know is, okay, if there's a patient advisory board, how was that selected? And is that something that is closed off and people can't get involved with now? Is that something that will members might be rotated? How was that board selected and how does that board function? Like I said, Eurodis is a member, a key member of the Screen for Care Consortium. And, and really, I think they have the legitimacy and the experience to speak on behalf of many rare disease um, advocacy groups across Europe. Um, and they chair um, the patient advisory board. Um, and so, you know, we went through quite a robust process thinking of who could be on this patient advisory board. Um, I mean, obviously, we cannot have representation for all 7,000 or all 10,000 um, rare diseases, right? But uh, really, folks that have a scientific expertise or used to work on these kinds of projects and consortiums and really challenge us in our thinking and, and in everything we do and, and speaking on behalf, if you will, of, of the, the rare disease community. We also have a multi-stakeholder engagement board that is also open to a whole variety of different stakeholders. And I think that's really a key aspect of our screen for care is the, um, the all the collaborations, all the stakeholder engagement. We really want to make sure that everybody has a voice um, so that we can talk about potential pain points, concerns, and whatnot. I was saying that screen for care is a research project, but ultimately the ambition is to understand the data that we're going to produce and based on that, hopefully make recommendations to public health decision makers on how different approaches to faster and better diagnosis could be implemented to, like I said, uh, diminish or eradicate uh, the rare disease diagnostic odyssey. Well, that would be wonderful. I think we would all agree that diminishing the length of time or eliminating it for, for families would be the most optimal outcome. So when it comes to the data that is being held and collected and analyzed, Will anything be published for the public at, at the end of the program? Because please correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought I saw on the, the website that it was 2026 that the program would be concluding. Yeah, so the project officially started in October of 2021 and will run for five years until October of 2026. As part of the IMI framework, the Innovative Medicines Initiative, which is supporting uh, and financing Screen for Care as a consortium. We have a data dissemination plan and, and data sharing plan, and all of the deliverables, which means all of the work that we will conduct in Screen for Care, will be shared with IMI um, in the form of uh, reports, uh, but also uh, published right and made public uh, in the shape of, uh, of research articles. One of the things that we'll make sure to uh, implement is to publish all of our articles is in open, what we call open access, so that uh, people do not have to pay uh, to be able to to read the, these these articles and these results. You hit the exact nail on the head in terms of the open publication of the data and, and the reports and the information because I know that. 
patient advocacy groups, it's something we really care about. Be um, seeing the work products and seeing, does this make any change for us? How, how do we interact with this kind of going forward? Um, one question that, that may seem a little out of left field, but um, one of the, or actually two families that I spoke with, they have children with rare conditions where there is facial morphology involved in the diagnostic process. So they have talked about a lot about face match and using facial re- recognition as part of the process. Is there any dovetailing of using morphology with any of the genomic testing or the genetic testing? Or are these things generally something that you would want to keep separate? Newborn genetic testing is just one aspect of screen for care. We also plan to study how to uh, shorten the diagnosis for patients based on what we call phenotype, which means, which could mean, for example, either features or symptoms and whatnot. So, for instance, one of the uh, focus areas of Screen for Care is to develop or repurpose artificial intelligence algorithms that can potentially flag patients that may have a rare disease using their electronic health record. Uh, And so that's also something that is really, really interesting. Um, And we design screen for care in a way that we would not solely focus on the newborn. But we know that there's a lot of patients out there who are trying to get a diagnosis, but they're cycling through physicians, through experts, and they are in the midst of what we call the, the diagnostic odyssey, right? And so we believe that with the power and the advent of artificial intelligence, machine learning, and digital tools, Uh, we can potentially help them and flag them in their electronic health records. And so we have an entire team working on this, as well as potentially designing new ways of of identifying patients based on imaging, actually, uh, mostly for some rare neuromuscular disorders, but that's also an an area of focus for, for screen for care. So when 2026 occurs and the reports are delivered, is there sort of an idea to come in to the countries that are participating or where there is participation and work in tandem with existing screening programs? Or how how does that relation interact after 2026? So first of all, let me say that we definitely plan to uh, publish data and publish results way before 26. We have a project management plan. And so every time that we'll produce something, we'll start right away working on uh, uh, publications, but also presentations in conferences and events so that we can share data and results as we produce them. But obviously, in 2026, we will have sort of like a broad vision on everything we've done and and the totality uh, of the data uh, that we will use to make recommendations. You're absolutely right. There are right now ongoing uh, newborn screening programs that are working really well And the goal is absolutely not to compete or replace, but really more to complement and accelerate. Um, Like I said, genetic newborn screening by itself will not deliver a diagnosis, right? It will be one element that the clinicians will need to consider, probably complemented by some metabolic tests, for example, that are currently part of ongoing newborn screening programs. And that's really how doctors will have a a complete picture. And so I think one could totally envision a future beyond 2026 where genetic newborn screening would complement 
currently ongoing newborn screening programs that are based on metabolic tests. And all of that together really create a, a comprehensive arsenal for the public healthcare system to help patients and families uh, accelerate diagnosis. It's interesting to hear what you're saying about not replacing the system, but complementing the system, adding the genetic component and adding on to some of the more traditional methods. But what do you think that marriage might look like? It, it is a very difficult question to answer just because of the speed of technological innovation. If we think back in the early 2000s, so only 20 years ago, um, performing one full a genome sequencing, the cost was a billion dollars. And fast forward today, the cost of a whole genome sequencing is maybe, is definitely less than a thousand dollars and it keeps going down very rapidly. So just that in itself sort of hints at the world of possibilities that will open up to us in the decades uh, to come. I think what we'll need to catch up is probably the ethical framework that surrounds newborn screening and, and different ways of diagnosing people. I think we'll have to uh, also understand the uh, data privacy uh, implication and the concerns that uh, the general public has when it comes to their data and the data of their newborns. Um, I think we'll, we'll have to, to really understand how that works. Um, but again, I, I think that the metabolic tests uh, are here to stay because they have you know, been proven to be extremely accurate and useful for many decades now. And so if it's not broken, let's not fix it. But, but the genetic tests and the advent of genomic medicine will definitely uh, potentiate and accelerate uh, the, the whole process. Wow, that's very exciting. And you're right. Certainly, things are moving incredibly quickly, especially when you mention things like AI-driven technology. Yeah, there's the, the privacy con concerns that people might have before deciding whether they want to participate in a program. And what if they want to retract their data? What if they no longer want to participate at a certain point? There are a lot of different... Uh, balls to juggle, really. You know, it's it's a, a juggling act to deal with all the different working pieces, but it'll be interesting to watch it as it develops. Absolutely. And, and I think that's actually maybe one of the unique specificities of screen for care is that screen for care is not just a research project where we do the research and then we publish the papers and then we're done. We're doing so much public consultation and stakeholder engagement and having conversations with everybody who's involved into that field, that it's really meant to, to drive uh, uh, hopefully change in progress, obviously based on data that we will produce within Screen for Care, but also looking at the data that is being produced around the world by so many other consortiums that are also uh, looking at how best uh, to do this. And in all honesty, I think the answers will also be different depending on where you look at it. Right. So one way to accelerate diagnosis and one way to perform genetic newborn screening might be suitable in a country and may be different in another country based on resources, culture, history, preferences, et cetera, et cetera. So and, and that's why it, it's such a great opportunity that a lot of different groups around the world are looking at this and doing research that is, um, you know, a little bit slightly different everywhere. Um, so that uh, potentially we'll, we'll come up with multiple answers that can fit the needs of, of the many. You mentioned part of my favorite quote is 
my favorite quote is the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. However, within that, there are a lot of other components. But at the end of the day, we are a global society. And we really do need to look at how can we best address the needs of the many, but not forget the needs of the few and make sure that those folks in our societies are also well taken care of and that we are producing science that applies to more people. It was nice to hear that. A lot of organizations will say that they believe their condition is a lot more prevalent than currently believed, but it's hard to produce the data. So are we hoping to also get some prevalence, you know, if we're looking at the general population in the newborn screening, are we hopeful to get some prevalence information as well and maybe see where that changes the landscape? What I will say is that historically, every single time that a newborn screening program was implemented for a new disease, inevitably the incidence went up. So that really tells you something. That tells you that unfortunately there are way too many people out there who are probably not experiencing great outcomes that have a rare disease um, and they just don't know it and no one knows. And so the data is not captured and obviously they're not being helped, right? We have a strong belief that uh, uh, everybody deserves to be cared for and care begins with diagnosis. So that's why as a Screen for Care Consortium, we decided to focus on diagnosis because it is so important. In terms of, of incidence and prevalence, in Screen for Care, we're aiming to screen somewhere around 20,000 to 30,000 uh, newborns, which is a very good number for a research project, for a pilot, we'll be able to derive a ton of data. But you can quickly do the math and, and see that if we were to screen for a single rare disease, that would not be nearly enough. However, we're potentially looking to screen for hundreds of rare diseases through different approaches. And so now in terms of cumulated incidents, we think that we'll have some very interesting numbers and interesting data. But really, if we want to uh, sort of put all the data together and really get a, a, a good sense of, of true prevalence and true incidence, I think as a global scientific community, we'll probably need higher numbers. And so that's why collaboration between projects, between initiatives, between consortium is very important because, like you know, rare disease is a numbers game. And so only by being together and collaborating, we'll be able to solve some of those questions. You know, it's like you're reading my mind just there, you know, the collaboration and the working together. There is no other way forward for any of us, whether whether you're the patient in in my case, in my family's case, or whether you're the researcher, we all need to collaborate and to really have open and honest dialogues so that we can move things forward together because there is no research without the patients. And also we need the research because we need to have an understanding of what we're dealing with and what our future and how can we improve our outcomes. So I enjoyed all of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, we're coming up on time here. So there's one very strange, quirky thing I like to ask people to do at the end of a chat. And that is, is there something that is resonating with you as a human being currently, something positive going on in your life or in the world or somebody that you'd like to thank or someone that you're grateful for? Just a moment of expressing pure positivity and gratitude if you're feeling up for it. Well, <laughs> um, I guess, you know, yesterday was Mother's Day. And so I think that's a really positive thought 
And especially in the context of today's conversation, right? I'm quite hopeful and I'm quite happy and proud to see all of our colleagues, all of our partners working in screen for care working in other similar related projects and consortiums um, because we, we want to help, right, these, the, the mothers and the childs that have just been born to um, have information, uh, be empowered with more knowledge to um, then take on life. I couldn't think of a better better way to just think about, you know, what Screen for Care is, is aiming to do. That's causing the feels. I'm a very emotional person. So anytime you mention something that's warm and fuzzy, I'm like, oh, yeah, I agree. That's fantastic. But yeah, I really love hearing things like that from folks because one of the things that keeps us all going at the end of the day is the positive impact that we're making and and is the knowledge that the future for someone else is going to be a lot brighter than it, it might be right now. So that's beautiful. I like that. I just want to thank you so much for making time during your very busy schedule to talk to us about this today. And my hope is that after folks hear this, they will bring more questions forward and we can continue to have more discussion around newborn screening and screen for care and what the future holds. But until then, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Signalize, a Dazzle Ferrer podcast. To stay up to date on the podcast and Dazzle Ferrer, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at D-A-Z-Z-L-E, the number four, Rare, R-A-R-E. And finally, if you liked this episode, share it with a friend and tag us on social media platforms. 